Would you please open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John? And you're going to read two texts of, from John. First in John chapter 3, and then John chapter 6. And I welcome those who are visiting us. Be welcome. It's a joy to have you with us. So John chapter 3. And then we are going to move to John chapter 6. And I invite you to stand if you can. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 44. Uh, Verse 43, first, and Jesus answered them, that's the crowds there, grumbling, arguing. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and now you raise him up on the last day. And now let's go to verse 65 of chapter 6. Verse 65, and Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You may be seated. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Amen. Why? 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 We hear these questions over and over again. Why? 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 And in the Christian circles, we often hear the answer as, because of man's free will. Why did God do that? Why did that happen? Why? And then we often hear, because of man's free will. And to many people, that's a satisfying answer. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, God does acts because he has to preserve my free will. I have heard that multiple, multiple times, and I have argued that before. The topic, the subject of the freedom of will is a very important one. Free will. It has been for centuries the heart of many debates in the church, theological debates, philosophical debates, and now even in the world of psychology and biology, people are talking about if the will is free. So that's a very important subject. And as Christians, we know that ultimately, the question of the will will be inseparable from our doctrine of sin. Because will is not something that's just floating out there. The will is part of who we are. So it's inseparable. The understanding of the doctrine of the will 
a doctrine of sin. And we are a Reformed church, that's what we have been studying. And one of the major issues of the Reformation was actually the question of the will of men. Is the will of men free? And I don't know how many of you have read Martin Luther's book, The Servus Arbitrio. The Servus Arbitrio, translated into English, The Bondage of the Will. And I hope that some of you have read and I encourage you to read that book. And you will see how Luther, uh, he's having a diatribe with Erasmus. He's having this intense dialogue with Erasmus. And Luther, Luther is very clear that one of the main issues of the Reformation was the question of sin and, and how much that affects the will of men. The Protestant Reformation was a, fundamentally a controversy with the Roman Catholic Church over how helpless we really are in our deadness and guilt. So Martin Luther, he writes in that book, he says, It is in the highest degree wholesome and necessary for a Christian to know whether or not his will has anything to do in matters pertaining to salvation. That's how vital it is. Indeed, let me tell you, that is the hinge on which our discussion turns. For if I'm ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will do in me. And he says, now, if I'm ignorant of God's works and power, I'm ignorant of God himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship Praise, give thanks, or serve Him, for I do not, do not know how much I, I should attribute to myself and how much to Him. That's how important it is, the question of the will of man. Is the will free? Because that will tell you how much you believe in your own power and in the power of God. So you might say, yeah, this doctrine is just Luther and Calvin who are teaching. These doctrines are doctrines of men. And we would argue no. That's clearly taught throughout the whole scope of the scriptures. And we see because that's part of the doctrine of sin. But the problem is the church in America has a repulsion to doctrine of sin. We don't want to talk about sin. You talk about sin, people leave here grumbling, saying that there was a dark sermon, that was not uplifting, that was joyless. People don't want to hear about sin. And the church does not preach about sin, and the church does not exercise church discipline because of sin. And now sin in the church is excused just as mental illness, it's just a problem, it's a physical issue that we have. Some medicine can help. Gerald Bray, he says, There is no subject of greater importance to Christian theology than its understanding of the concept of sin and its effects. Why is the doctrine of sin the most important? Because if you don't understand sin, you will not understand grace. 
If you don't understand sin, you will not comprehend what God has done on our behalf. Grace is only amazing grace when we understand the situation where we were at when that grace came to rescue us. So a full understanding and acceptance of the power of sin and how it has left us completely unable to do anything good to save ourselves is the only way to fully see the glory and majesty of Christ. Apart from an understanding of the doctrine of sin, you do not know who Jesus Christ is. That's what's taking place in John chapter 6. They want a Messiah of their own fabrication. And that's how so many people see Jesus. They create a Jesus in their mind, and they want to worship that Jesus. But if you don't understand the doctrine of sin, you do not understand Christ. Here's just a brief example referring to Jesus coming. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? From their sins. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which pour out for many for the forgiveness of what? Sins. You know, John says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for what? Our sins. You see, if you do not understand the doctrine of sin, Christ Jesus will be a wonderful, a wonderful helper who is coming to make your life a little bit better. To give a better life here and now. So why are we talking about that? Why are we talking about sin? Why are we talking about the ramifications? How deep sin has affected us? Why are we talking about that? For those who are visiting us, we are doing a series. Why are we called Reformed Baptists? What does it mean to be a Reformed Baptist church? And we are working first through the Reformed aspect of our church. What does it mean for us to be Reformed? And we saw that one of the main things of being reformed are the five solas. The five solas of the Reformation. And the five solas summarize the great time of the Reformation when the reformers were just bringing the doctrines of the Bible back to the life of the church. And then we saw how the doctrines of grace are developing and expanding and explaining those solas. Especially sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus. Oh, I believe in grace alone. What do you mean by that? What do you believe that salvation, our salvation must be for God's glory alone? What do you mean by that? And that's what you're exploring in the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace explain that. And we saw how the doctrines of grace, we have an acronym for the five points of the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. And the acronym is TULIP. And I don't have time. I did that last Lord's Day. So if you're not here, I want to encourage you to listen. We spent a lot of time developing this subject. But I think the acronym TULIP is very appropriate, very helpful, very sound. And we start developing this theme last Lord's Day, especially the first one, TULIP. The T, total depravity. 
And we're going to continue developing today. So here is the outline of this morning's sermon. We're going to just pick up where we stopped last Lord's Day. So the outline is total depravity defined, total depravity verified, and then total depravity applied. So just as a way of review, and I think it's important, we easily forget things. So total depravity defined, and let's... Sunday, we explore there, we, we talk about what total depravity is not, and that's very important. But I don't have time to go through those things again. Because a lot of times, the misconceptions we have, it's because we are thinking things that they're not true about that statement. So we define the doctrine of total depravity as the biblical teaching that all human beings have all the parts of their composition, body, emotion, will, mind, desire, Affected, defected, and infected by sin. The internal corruption of Adam's sin's nature has been imputed to the totality of every part of every person from the moment of conception. That's what this doctrine teaches. So I'm going to call John McLean, a scholar, to help us. He says, Sin leaves no part of the human person untouched. This point is emphasized by the claim that sin has to do with our heart. The, ver the very center of our being is gripped and enslaved. Total depravity does not mean that humanity is as evil as it could be, but it does mean that no part of the human is unaffected by sin and that we are unable to extract ourselves from sin. That's how we define the doctrine of total depravity. We have been so deeply contaminated and infected with sin that all our faculties, all our faculties, are contaminated with sin in a way that we cannot achieve salvation. We are talking about spiritual things. We are not talking about natural things. Spiritual things. So if you are thinking the doctrines of grace, how does total depravity fit with the doctrines of grace? It could change total depravity for why is grace needed? And that's what we're looking at. So, and then we move to the doctrine of depravity verified throughout the scriptures. We saw how that's not a creation of Calvin or Luther or the reformers. But Moses was teaching. David was teaching. We're just singing here. Psalm 51. Creating me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And we saw last Lord's Day how David is going back to Genesis. And he knows that he cannot clean his heart. He needs a regeneration. He needs the work of God to come and change, give him a new heart. So we, we walk through the Old Testament. I'm not going to do that again. We're going to move to the New Testament, total depravity in the New Testament. Because some people might say, yeah, the Old Testament is dark. The Old Testament, God is mean. But in the New Testament, no. And actually, it just becomes more and more clear the teachings of total depravity in the New Testament. And I will focus just on Paul and then Jesus. I'd love to go through Luke and Acts and uh, Peter and James, Revelation. But we are going to just focus on Paul and then Jesus Christ. So, first, let's see Paul. What did Paul teach about total depravity? And we go to Romans chapter 3. So please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3.
And in Romans chapter 3, Paul is coming just like a lawyer. He's bringing his case as why he needs to go and preach the gospel to all the nations. Why he needs the churches in Rome to support him. He wants to go to Spain. Why does he want to continue keeping the preach, preaching the gospel? Why? Because all people need to hear the gospel. And then he says, chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. Why, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and Greek is another way to refer to all the world apart from the Jews, so Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, no one, not just some, no one is righteous. Not even the Jews. Not one. All have, all have turned aside Together, they all have become what? Worthless. So Paul is arguing here that total depravity means the totality of humankind. You can go everywhere and you will find depraved people. Sin has affected everyone and that's why he needs the support of Rome. The churches in Rome. Because he wants to go and keep preaching where the gospel has not reached yet. Why? Because people are dead in sins and they need to hear the gospel. Because the gospel, he tells in Romans 1, is the power of God to save people. Okay? So from cannibals in Papua New Guinea to the sweet old grandma across my street that goes to the Mormon church to the baby in the womb or even those babies who were just born that we talk about, they're all totally infected with sin. And they need a Savior. So Paul is going to continue because the totality is not just all over the world, but it's inside us. So in verses 10 through 18, he develops how the depravity of man is inside and affects all the parts of man, all the parts that compose man's being. So he says, as it's written, and remember, he's not quoting John Calvin's Institutes. He's not quoting Martin Luther, the bondage of the will. He's going to quote the Old Testament. So he says, as it's written, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. And no one does good. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are destruction and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So you think about a man and all the parts that make a man is spoken by Paul and affected with sin. The totality of man's composition. Look at that. The mind, no one understands. The will, no one seeks. The hands, does good. The speech, he talks about throat, tongue, lips, mouth. The lifestyle, feet, path. And the spiritual sight, eyes. And that's why Paul longs to preach the gospel. And that's why he needs the support of the churches. Because people need the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God. To save sinners. 
knowing this, the power of sin, God has sent to us not a teacher or a politician, but a liberator. One who has the power to set us free from our sins. And that's why Paul needs to preach the gospel. Because Christ is in the gospel. And then you move on to, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. Paul continues developing this theme. And he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, and brothers and sisters, now we are going to start seeing the use of this word here, this verb, this now, can. Indeed, it cannot. I'll talk more about that, but can here is not permission like we say in English. Can I go to the bathroom? No. Can here is power, ability. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Paul, he's always dividing humanity in two races. Here you have those who are in the flesh, meaning Adam, and those who are in the spirit, that is in Christ. And those who are not in Christ, they're in the flesh, they're controlled by the flesh, and they cannot, they do not have the power to please God. Paul says that for the what? The mind. Here's the word for, from, we get from now that we saw in Philippians. It's not just thinking. It's a pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. Has been contaminated with sin. So there is no, no way to please God. And then he continues in chapter 8 of Romans. And Paul is actually here developing. His, it's an ex, ex, exposition of Genesis 3. He's explaining the consequence of sin. And then he goes on. You can see in verses 19 through 22. How Paul tells that the sin of Adam and Eve infected and affected even creation itself. And the whole creation is what? Groaning. Waiting. Because it has been affected with sin. And can you imagine? To say that sin has affected all creation but did not affect our will. Sin has affected the whole creation, but not my will. And then he goes on, let's go to 1 Corinthians now. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross, the message of the gospel, is what? Foolishness, folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Paul once again divides humanity. Not in black, white, yellow, brown. He divides humanity in, look at that, those who are perishing, those who are in this, perishing in Adam, in the flesh, and those who are being saved, those who are in Christ, in the Spirit. And Paul says that to the natural man, the message of the gospel is what? Foolishness. Moria, from, from where we get moron in English. It's foolishness. For us to hear the gospel is just like this beautiful symphony. For the unbeliever, just this loud, obnoxious noise. Please tell this guy to shut up. Why did you bring me to church? In 2.14, Paul develops that. He says that the natural person... 
the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And then he explains, for they are folly to him, and he is what? He cannot. He's not able. The same word there. To understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So you see how sin has corrupted them, the mind of man to such a way that he lost the ability to receive the things of God. And then Paul says, continuing 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul declares that no one, no one has the power to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So much for all the music playing. Let's try to engage the emotions of the people so they can accept Jesus. If the Holy Spirit does not act, that's worthless. Thomas Reiner, he says, Obviously, Paul does not intend to say that no one can utter the, just the words, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Anyone can pronounce the words. What he means is that no one can claim Jesus as Lord and live under his Lordship apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit so works in the heart of people that, that people gladly submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ. Amen. And the last one in Paul, and I don't think we can get any more clear here in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, And you, and he's referring to Christians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which once you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sense of disobedience. And then he adds himself, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, think about that. Paul is a Benjamite, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee, and he joins himself to say, from the moment of my conception, I was a child of wrath. It was not by God's mercy and grace. So Paul describes all humanity as dead, in slavery to sin, and by nature, children of wrath. So, what do you bring to your salvation? What do you bring according to Ephesians chapter 2? What do you bring to your salvation? Just a nasty, stinky corpse of sin. That's what we bring to salvation. That's where the role that we play in our salvation. A body full of maggots, gross, can do nothing. That's the picture of man. It's not that we are sick and you just bring the spoon with the medicine and I'll drink that. No, we are dead. Completely dead. Brian Chappell, he writes, This picture of our pre-Christian state is devastating to any suggestion that we possess the ability to act or believe in such a way as to save ourselves. By nature and practice, we are spiritually lifeless. Our status before God is that of a dead people. And he says, Nothing 
convinces me more of the need for the sovereign initiative of a loving God in my salvation than this assessment in the scripture of my total inability to save myself. The dead cannot save themselves. No. And if you picture Lazarus in the grave, we are just as good as Lazarus. And we need a mighty voice of the Lord saying, Jeff, come out. We need the power of God to make us alive. Amen. So you can see how Paul clearly proclaims that man, apart from God's saving grace and work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, is completely unable and incapable of accepting the gospel and treasuring Jesus as Savior. Let's move to Jesus. Right? There are some people who love the red letters. They think that the red letters are more inspired than other letters in the Bible. So let's go to the red letters and see what, the, what Jesus taught. Right? Uh, I like George Whitfield. He says, the great evangelistic preacher George Whitfield, he says, I embrace the Calvinistic scheme, not because of John Calvin, but Jesus Christ has taught, has taught it to me. So what did Jesus teach about sin? And the, we saw last Lord's Day the most Americans and most Christians in America believe that man is born what? Innocent? Did Jesus teach that? Did Jesus teach that man is basically good? Did Jesus teach that the heart of man is nice and good? The problem is outside? So let's see what Jesus taught us. And let's go to the heart of the matter. And that is in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses, let's just read verses 20 through 23. But the whole controversy here is very important. They're dealing with things that are unclean. What makes a person unclean? The Jews believe that by going to the market and touching things outside, that's what would make them unclean. And Jesus is teaching them that what makes a person unclean is not out there, but it is where? Within us. So... And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles sin. For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, weakness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus says that the problem is not out there. The problem is inside us. And like a, a heart surgeon, you think about a heart surgeon, right? He opens up the chest cavity and he points right to the heart. And he says, here is the problem. Here is the issue. Jesus, not John Calvin, declares that the heart of every single person is contaminated with evil. Jesus says that the heart of man, apart from saving grace, is just like a Pandora box with all sorts of nasty things. And the heart, you think about the heart in the Bible, the heart, for us, the heart is just the feelings. No, in the Bible, the heart, we saw that in Genesis 6, the heart is the center of man. The heart affects everything. Spurgeon says, 
The heart is the true man. It is the very citadel of the city of Menso. It is the fountain and reservoir of manhood. And all the rest of men may be compared to the many pipes which run from the fountain through the streets of a city. And he says, the Savior puts his finger on the mainspring of the machine of manhood, and he cries, here is the evil. Like a great physician, he lays his hand upon the very core of human nature and exclaims, here is the disease. The heart is infected. And from the heart affects all the rest of our composition. So we see how the heart affects the eyes. So in John chapter 1 and 3, we see how sin has made us spiritually blind to the things of God. So in John chapter 1, we read in verses 9 through 11, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not what? receive him. That's how blind we are apart from God's grace. The one who created us, the one who made us, come to us and we will say what? Depart from me. Just like Adam, we will hide ourselves. And in John chapter 3, we hear this from Jesus' own words as he's talking to Nicodemus. Jesus replied to Nicodemus, Amen, amen, I tell you, what? Some people, some people who grew up in a really bad home, people who went to public school, no one, no one, it's a universal negative. No one can, remember, can here is a word of power, ability, not permission. No one can what? See, and see here is not just with the eyes, but it's to comprehend. The, the idea of seeing something is to embrace and understand. See what? See what? The kingdom of God. In the person of Jesus, the king. Unless, praise the Lord for the conditions, unless what? They are born from above. So Jesus clearly and unmistakably states that no one has the ability and capability of perceiving and understanding spiritual things related to his kingdom unless God performs the miracle of regeneration. And you can see in John chapter 3, verse 5, he repeats the same thing. Jesus said, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Meaning, you need to be born again. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what did you do? What was your work in being born? In being conceived? Did you do anything? That's why Jesus used this beautiful metaphor. It's completely out of you. God. God worked that new birth. And then he says in verse 6, that flesh produces flesh. Sinful men will always produce more sinful men. And then not only the eyes, but we see how it affects the ears. Man is totally deaf to the things of God. We don't have the ability and capability of hearing the voice of the shepherd unless he changes our hearts and our ears. So in John chapter 8, 
You see this confrontation here between Jesus and the religious leaders. And he says, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear, you cannot, look at that, you cannot, you don't have the power to bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Look at that, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Because he's telling the truth, they do not believe him. If he was telling lies, they would believe. If I tell the truth, why you do not believe? And then he explains, he gives the answer. Whoever's, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. And then he just very goes to the juggler here. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. He's telling the best of the Jews, you are not of God. You do not belong to God. You have not been adopted by God. And that's why you cannot hear my words. You need to be born again. The Spirit of God must come and change your heart and change your ears so you can hear my words and understand them. That, that's very similar to what Paul said in, in, in the text we saw earlier. And then Jesus, in the same chapter, we see that the will of man is affected. Look at that. You belong, Jesus says, verse 44, John 8. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Jesus tells the most religious people in the world that because of their sinful nature, their will, their desire belongs to Satan. Like father, like son. The word want there is the word for will. The will of man is not free. Sin has infected the will of man. So, you think, man, that's bad. That's bad. That's really bad. Wait, it's going to get worse. It gets worse. He says, in John chapter 6, we saw, because of the will of man is enslaved, the heart is depraved, man cannot, does not have the power to walk to Jesus and embrace Him as Savior. When you come to John chapter 6, you remember these people are all excited about Jesus because Jesus fed them, so they want this Messiah who will just give them material things. And Jesus goes and confronts them. Oh yeah, you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You need to suffer with me. Oh, who are you to say these things? And then he says, do not grumble among yourselves. Honestly, you thought that you guys came to me running. Remember, they're all running towards Jesus. You thought you came to me. No, no, no. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same thing in verse 65. And in the context of the gospel of John, to come to Jesus is what? To embrace him, to believe him, to trust him. So let's just walk quickly. And we need to move quickly here through these words. Jesus says, no one... No one means what? Good. You can even go to the Greek and the no one there means no one. No one. Can, then we need to clarify here because in English we use can for all sorts of things. Can for permission. Oh, it can rain today, so possibility. But the can here, once again, is the can of power, ability. 
No one has the ability or the power to do what? To come. Come to me. It means no man has the power, the ability to run to Jesus' arms and repent and embrace Him as the Savior. That's the bad news. Horrible news. But there is good news. Unless, unless, what? The Father who sent me, do what? Draws. We are going to talk more about the word in irresistible grace. But we usually think about drawing as this something gentle. This Greek word here, helko, is used in the New Testament always by someone being dragged by force. It's the same word used for when they're dragging Paul through the streets of a city. Let me tell you, that was not gentle. It's the same word for dragging a sword. You pull the sword. It requires force. Leon Morris, he says, people like to feel independent, especially here in our country. They think that they, that they come or that they can come to Jesus entirely on their own volition. Jesus assures us that this is an utter impossibility. No one, no one at all can come unless the Father draws him. Unless the Father drags and hauls us by his mighty grace, we will run away from Jesus. And then let's just keep moving. The last one here. And Jesus' teaching. And he thought that was bad. Now just the cherry on top of the cake. Mark chapter 10. That's one of the most tragic encounters in the Bible. Jesus and the rich young ruler. You can see Jesus' compassion. He confronts that man's heart with all his idols. Jesus is confronting his heart. Showing all the idols that he has there. And what does the man do? He just walks away. And Jesus lets that man walk into hell. He's just on his path to hell itself. And the disciples are astonished. They're exceedingly astonished. So they ask each other, Then, what? Who has the power and the ability to be saved? Man, if this guy here, who is the best candidate of all, He's Jew, he's rich, blessed by God, he has kept all the commandments. If this guy cannot be saved on his own, then who has the power to be saved? And Jesus' answer is, here's the only hope for fallen men. With man it is impossible, powerless, impossible, but not with God. For all things are that same word for power, ability, are possible with God. God alone has the power to bring life from the grave. So we see how Jesus, not Calvin, not Luther, not the reformers, Jesus himself is very clear that no man, no man because of sin, can come to him on his own accord. We can only choose him because he first chose us. We can only love him because he first loved us. We can only come to Him because He first came to us and touched our hearts. So our Lord is showing that sin is not just an innocent shortfall or, or something just naive, a mistake, but it's this toxic, toxic condition of man 
that permeates the whole entirety of man's being in a way that makes us impossible to understand, comprehend, love, and do anything to be saved on our own. That's why Jesus says, apart from me, you can what? do nothing. You can, the same, you have power to do nothing. We need a God. That's the gospel. We need a God who is willing. We need a God who is powerful. We need a God who is able. And that is our triune God. And that's why Paul is so eager in Romans to preach the gospel because he knows that the gospel is what? Do you remember the same word? It's what brings men ability, capability, and power to come to the Lord for salvation. So, as we finish here, let's just bring a conclusion in doctrine, the doctrine of total depravity applied into our lives. How is this doctrine applied to our lives? There is tremendous application in our lives, and I need to restrain myself because we could go in so many different routes. So, first of all, how total depravity affects our understanding of missions. We must be people who are centered and motivated for missions. I have heard, I have argued before, oh, Reformed people, if you believe in predestination, you should not be preaching the gospel. That's ridiculous. That has nothing to do with anything. Because people are depraved in all parts of the world. We need to go and preach the gospel because the gospel alone is God's power to save people. So, we need to be motivated to go and preach the gospel. Like Romans 3, all over, all over, men from every nation, tribe, and tongue are born under the power of sin. They are born, they are conceived as children of wrath. Have you ever heard that question, what about the innocent men? What about the innocent people in the jungles of Indonesia? What about those innocent people in the jungles of Amazon who never heard the gospel? Paul would say there is no innocent man. There is no one who is innocent. They're all born under the wrath of God. And rightly so. It's righteous of God to condemn everyone because of sin. The strange thing is that he has mercy on some. This affects our parenting. Not only missions, but parenting. As we look at the little ones that we have, grandparents, parents, we should be looking at them and seeing that their greatest need is not the savings for a good education, but it's a new heart. They need a new heart. J.C. Ryle says, we need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. No bad companion teaches a boy or a girl as half as much sin as their own hearts will suggest to them. Unless they are renewed by the Spirit. If parents were half as diligent in praying for their children's conversion as they are in keeping them from bad company their children would turn out far better than they do. Brothers and sisters, we, we ought to set boundaries. We, we ought to discipline the little ones. That's God's means of restraining the depravity of men. 
That's how God restrains evil. Look at our society. The less, the less parenting there is, the, the less discipline, the more evil. So yes, there is this beautiful aspect where discipline, training, taking care of the behavior is important, restrains evil. But we know that ultimately the heart needs to be changed. We care about our children's friends. We care about the places where they spend time. We care about the people that they are receiving education from. But not because we believe that they are innocent. But because we believe that they are so evil in their hearts. That the last thing that they need is more evil. And do not be deceived that just because your little one is growing up in a Christian home, he speaks the Christian lingo, memorized Bible verses that he is a little Christian. They are the champions in deceiving people. What children need is to be in the church, under the sound preaching, surrounded by godly people. That's how sinners are saved. <laughs> Amen? Amen? And also... How we see government. Total depravity affects how we see government. If you see men as basically innocent and good, it will determine how you see how a government must act. Just look at our state, Oregon, look at California, look at Washington. People are good. People are good. You just need to give a little help. Why punish them? They, they just need help. But if you see men as sinners, totally depraved and capable of heinous atrocities, you will desire government with checks and balances, strict punishment of evil, and that rewards good behavior. That affects the local church, our view of total depravity. Affects how we, the mission organizations that we support, and affects how we view the local church. What church are you going to? What church do you want to be part? Because that will be affected. The reason why we give the priority to preaching the word is because we strongly believe that the only, the only way for a sinner to be converted is by the Spirit of God getting the word of God and transforming their heart. That's why we are not concerned about playing a cool song after the preaching, trying to make people feel good. That's why I hear, oh man, so and so came to church and felt so uncomfortable. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. As long as it's not we sinning against them, but they're uncomfortable because the gospel has been proclaimed. The Spirit of God is moving here. Amen. So with Paul, we declare that we must preach the gospel. And that's why we have the Word of God in every gathering that we have. We sing sound hymns. We know that the gospel is the power of God. Amen. And let me just say one thing. When you understand the doctrine of total depravity, you will never say that you have a boring testimony. I have heard people say, oh, my testimony is boring. I'm like, you are boring, but your testimony will never be boring. <laughs> because when you realize from where God rescued you, it can never be boring. Oh, I don't even, believe, I don't even remember when I was not a Christian. You were. The Bible is very clear. They were for a time. You were not a Christian. And God saved you. And you should fall on your knees and give thanks to Him. Amen? Amen? So, we need, we need this dark background. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Gospel for Real Life, he says, Just as the diamonds on a jeweler, jeweler's counter shine more brilliantly 
when set upon a dark velvet pad, so Christ's redemptive work shines more brilliantly when contrasted with our sin and the consequent curse that was upon us. We are utterly hopeless, helpless in relation to salvation. We need a God who is not only powerful, but God who is willing. And when you understand the doctrine of total depravity, you are going to beg for the next one. Unconditional election. Please, Lord, have mercy on me, because I cannot save myself. So, as Luther said, if I am ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can do and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will do in me. So we need the right diagnosis, and that's what the total depravity teaches. Here's the diagnosis. You are completely, fully incapable and unable to come to Christ. You need grace, you need mercy, you need a God who comes to save you. And that's what the gospel is. Amen? And those who understand the doctrine of total depravity, those who understand how much they have been forgiven, they will love much. My love for the Lord increased drastically after I started understanding the doctrines of grace. The life of holiness completely changed because you understand how much God has done to rescue you, how much you have been forgiven. And then you only want to do one thing, give your life back to Him, serve Him, and love Him. Father, we, we are humbled by this doctrine. Those are hard words. And we praise you for giving us hard words. We praise you for harsh mercy, severe mercy to wake us up. Lord, we, we pray that you deliver us from pride and arrogance. The last thing that a Christian who understands this doctrine should be is arrogant. We fall with our faces to the dust, we eat dust. And we declare that apart from you, we are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for saving us. Thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for removing us from being in Adam to being in Christ Jesus. Something that we could never do on our own, Lord. And I pray for those here who have not come to you for salvation. I pray that your Holy Spirit change their hearts. Give them the will to desire you. Give them the feet to run to you. Give them the arms to embrace you. Give them the eyes to see your beauty. Give them the ears to hear your sweet voice. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.